Listener Production. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this podcast is created on. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging, and I'd really like to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. I knew who Bronte Campbell was because she's an Olympic champion. If you saw her in Tokyo, you'll know this chick is fast in the pool. I never expected, though, that we'd become mates, but that's what happened when we met on Celebrity Apprentice. (laughs) You're good at doing, you're not good at leading. (laughs) We've really got to work on our accents. I saw her from across the room and I was incredibly jealous of her arms and her, her shoulder muscles. I asked her to be on this podcast because I think she's got a really fascinating backstory. The fact that she didn't grow up in Australia, uh, her relationship with her sister Kate, who's also an Olympic champion, and what it takes to be the best in the world at something. And guess what? It doesn't involve smoking darts. So here is the beautiful Bronte Campbell. Thanks for coming on. Nice to see your face again. I know. Well, I'm only just seeing your face on the TV. Yeah, and we all know that's not reality. <laughs> Do you watch much reality? No, I've I've never really watched reality TV, like pretty much none. Even when everyone was getting into The Bachelor and stuff, I just didn't really, um, I wasn't really that into it. Okay. Well, we recently did a crazy thing. We were on Celebrity Apprentice. Yes, we were. Why did you decide... <laughs> To do it. Why did we decide to do it? I, I mean, don't know. <laughs> I honestly, there were so many moments when we were asking ourselves, like, what are we doing here? Like, what decision did I make that led me to like standing on the side of a river at six a.m.? Like, what have what have I done to to be here? Looking around at the tasks, like, what have I done to like suddenly be walking around Newtown dressed as a pregnant lady? Like, this is actually <laughs> insane. But I think I think like that first night when we met, we were like, "Why? Why are you here?" I was like, "Why are you here?" And I think we were both like, "Well, it's pretty much we've not had an opportunity to do anything like this before. Everyone just come out of COVID, and then like the opportunity to raise money for charities was just huge. Like I know how important your charity was to you, and my charity was really important to me as well. So the ability to be able to do that was probably a big motivating factor because I've never had that platform before to, to do that with. And yeah, it was just a lot of money that particularly you were able to raise. Like that, that would have taken a lot of, uh, it might have taken a year to get that. And it turns out that you raised that within a day. Like it was, it was insane. Yeah, it was really good. I feel conflicted because I'm stoked that I raised so much money for my charity. You raise a lot for your charity too, uh, but never again. Never <laughs> Absolutely <do> never again. <laughs> no way in hell. No, no. Um, tell me a bit about your charity. So my charity is Carers Australia and they look after the unpaid carers in Australia. So these are people who are just caring for their friends or family members um, who are ill or require extra care. And there's 2.65 million of them, so... There, um, there's, there's so many. There's, there's. You probably know somebody who's a carer in some capacity, but you don't know that you know them because it's sort of done very quietly a lot of the time. And they're just, they're amazing people. And my mum is full time carer for my younger brother and has been um, ever since he was little because he has cerebral palsy. 
And so I've sort of grown up around it and um, know that these people need a lot of support and they never ask for it. So that's Carers Australia's job is to, to step in and advocate for them and then provide them as much support as they can as well. Is Hamish younger than you? Yeah, Hamish is my younger brother. He's um he's four years younger than me. He was actually born on my birthday, so we share a birthday. Like on my fourth birthday, he was born, which when I was four, I was not so stoked about, but now I think it's kind of cute. <laughs> uh, and so you weren't even born in Australia. Uh, you were born in Malawi? Malawi. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that. I was, no, I was born in Malawi, which is a small country in Africa. My parents are from South Africa and they'd moved to Malawi. Um, I'm actually one of five kids. I mean, most people, not most people, some people would know my sister Kate and myself, but... Um, there's actually three other kids as well. So there was four of us born in Malawi, including my brother Hamish, and then we moved to Australia in 2001 when I was seven. So I was still pretty young when I came over, and while I have good memories of Malawi, like I definitely feel more Australian. Did you have seven in Malawi? Yes. Sorry, this Malawi. Sorry. Malawi. <laughs> How do you say it? Malawi. Malawi. I'm saying it like question mark. Malawi, yeah. Malawi. Yes, and that is it's very strange because it's such an, an, a normal thing there. As in, like, we had, um, we had a night watchman who sort of helped protect our house at night. Um, he did a lot of sleeping, which is also fine. Um, we actually had, like, a little place for, like, a place for servants to stay, and we would um, then provide food as well as pay and housing. So it's, I don't know, You get it's weird looking back at it now when you're older and when you've got a little bit of context around you, like, wow, that's just not an okay way for a society to function, is it? But at the time, you don't even question it at all, at all. <laughs> Were you guys super affluent? Is that why? No, we weren't super affluent. We were just, well, we were just white, firstly, and um, like by... Australian standards, definitely not. Like when we came here, we had basically no money. And um, particularly when you try and do a conversion from kwacha, which is what we used in Malawi, to Australian dollars, that doesn't convert very well. Like we never grew up with money at all. The, the complete opposite. Like I don't think I bought new clothes until I was about 15. Like it was all, all hand-me-downs and op shops and stuff, which is – it's. It's not a pity thing. It's just how we grew up. There was five of us and we all moved to Australia. And it's like, <laughs> how are we going to feed and clothe this mob of people? Like, it was insane. I used to wear, like, every color of the rainbow and, like, all these hilarious clothes because, like, we just picked them up out of op shops. It was hilarious. But um, I actually love op shopping. I do it now all the time as well. But, yeah, it, was, it wasn't that we were super affluent. It was just that the different classes of the of that society was so big like the the differences between the wealth gap was so big like if you even if you just had a little bit if you had a if you had a job suddenly you could then be employing servants and then there was like a whole level level above that but it's not Malawi's not a super wealthy country it's not like somewhere like India where you've got like the millionaire billionaires and a lot of them and then you've also got a lot of people who are homeless so it doesn't have that next level, but um, yeah, we definitely weren't a wealthy family. We were just a lot better off than a lot of people. Yeah, the reason I asked, I guess, is just 
I guess it's a bit of a reflection of the social climate in that this is a massive generalisation, but white people had money to pay for servants and servants were usually black. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely accurate for how it was in Malawi. And that's, I mean, Malawi was colonised by the British um, and then they left. But it's a, yeah, it's definitely a reflection of that. And maybe it's changed there in Malawi now. I mean, like I'm talking like 1990s, but I don't know, probably not. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and where did your mom give birth to you guys? Like, a, was it at home? No, I was in the hospital, um, just the, the local hospital in Malawi. Um, all four of us, Hamish included. Um, there wasn't a lot of facilities there. So when my brother was born, he had a lot of complications at birth. He was actually a stillborn and had to be resuscitated and then um, kept alive until they could fly him to South Africa where there was enough um, medical facilities for him there. Um, luckily, we had good health insurance that got a flight and got him out that night. But before they did, there was literally someone pumping air into his lungs like by hand, like holding those little hand things and making sure that he could breathe for a few hours until he could get on a plane and um, go to somewhere that had a proper ventilator. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot of facilities in Malawi, um, which was also part of the reason why it was so important to come to Australia and for mum's next child, which was my youngest sister, to have that that extra support. It was, um, it was really important that we found somewhere that had that. Well, tell me about the move to Australia then. I think we'd start a visa process because you know how hard it is to get a visa to Australia. Like I'm only appreciating now that I'm old. I mean, I was seven at the time. I didn't care about any of this, but we'd started validating our visas probably two years before. Came over to a quick little trip in Perth in order to get that visa and then came over June, July 2001. And it was a huge culture shock for me. It was so different from, so different from where I'd grown up. Like I literally never worn shoes. Like I never used to wear shoes. I just run around and like do whatever I wanted. And all us kids, we used to. There's probably about four families that came together and did a school together. And so you'd sort of know everybody, of course. And um, in the lunch breaks, you'd all just run around and I don't know, play in the dirt like a kid. And then I came to school, and I was like, "This is insane!" Like I have to wear shoes all day, and I'm supposed to be wearing a skirt and like. The boys won't let me play soccer with them because girls don't play soccer. Only the boys do. And the girls are like sitting in circles and talking to each other. And I was like, I can't handle this. Like, I honestly can't deal with like how structured this is. So I used to go and hunt insects and show them to my teacher. I was poor teachers. Like, imagine dealing with a little little child that like seven years old, won't wear her shoes and then keeps coming up and showing you these grasshoppers that she's found during the lunch break. You'd be like, I need I need some support just to Aww. deal with this weird child. I think it's quite sweet. <laughs> That's because you're a mum. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, so cute. Well, what were your parents like? Were they strict? Yeah, my parents were pretty strict. Very clear expectations of what we were supposed to be doing when we were kids. and. Aww. Um, to be fair, we were 
pretty well behaved children. Like there was a lot of us. There was five of us. So to whip us all into shape, it was um yeah, they were strict, but um I think it was it was good in a way that we had a lot of clarity about what was I always knew where the line was, always. <laughs> so if I wanted to go across it, it was like, oh I kind of kind of knew that was there. <laughs> so they had firm boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, they really did. And sort of still do, like still got very clear ideas of right and wrong. It can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It's nice to nice to have a clear idea in yourself of what you think is good and what you think isn't good. But I like living in the gray a little bit more and maybe I'm just at that younger stage in my life where I'm trying to figure out exactly exactly what bits to believe, I guess. I guess it's quite hard line, you know, that this is wrong and this is right and there's no room for flexibility. Yeah, I think the idea that you can have flexibility is good. Like there's that thing of if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything. There's that. It's like, great, you've got to have some values and some beliefs, but I like the idea that those can change over time and be challenged and not not be tied up in them. Like I've, I don't want to be... I don't want my ego tied up in what I believe. That's um, That doesn't mm. seem like a good idea. And when you say what you believe, do you mean like God? Yeah, I mean like religion or even just, it's amazing to me how much we care about what other people do when it doesn't affect us. Like this is fair enough. Like if somebody's causing harm to someone else or if there's those sorts of things, like great definitely worth having an opinion on but how much we care about things that just don't affect us at all and you get caught up in the hype of that so trying not to buy into that as well like even even things like people talking about open marriages or something and everyone starts like judging them for it I'm like it's got nothing to do with you like it doesn't it doesn't matter you're allowed to have an opinion on it but like judging someone based on something that doesn't impact you at all just doesn't make any sense to me yeah that's a good point you're very wise very well, Frontier. Well, talk to me about swimming because your mum had a big influence on your swimming career. Yeah. Yeah, she did. So I sort of, I think the love of swimming got passed down to me through the women in my family. Like my grandma used to teach kids in her backyard how to swim. My mum was a synchronized swimmer, which they now call artistic swimming. Um, and she was really good at that. And she used to teach the um, high school kids. And we'd go along and she'd be like, okay, great. You can either um, play on the sides or if you're going to get in the pool, you have to like try keep up with these kids. And I was like five and they were 15. But um, that was my first introduction to any sort of training. I mean, synchronized swimming is so different. You do a lot of sculling and breath holding and trying to make figures and all this stuff. So it can be quite grueling, but also can be quite fun when you're a kid when you're like, oh, I get to spin upside down now. Like, it's um I enjoyed it a lot, but um when we moved to Australia, that's when I first started actually swimming. So I um I just watched the 2000 Olympics the year before, and I was like, great, all the Australians are really good at swimming. I like swimming. I like being in the pool. When I moved to Australia, I'm going to be an Olympic swimmer, and like that was it. That was that was literally it for me. I just decided when I was seven years old that great, you're here now, and now you need to start training for the Olympics. <laughs> That's so wild. It's so, st- it's so weird. When I look back now, like I'm like, I can't believe I knew. And then it actually, I mean, so many people have dreams when they're young and so many kids in particular have things that they want to be. Um, but 
it's just, I can't believe I picked the one thing that I'm actually capable of doing. Like, if I decided to be a basketball player, I mean, you, you've you seen me try to catch something. Like, it wouldn't have gone well. I think as well, though, you obviously had that dedication and passion and the willingness to work hard. Yeah, definitely. That's part of it. But I also picked something that I had a natural talent in. Yeah. Um, and that's... Yes, definitely. It's taken a lot to get here. But I also don't want to discount a lot of the people that I grew up with who worked just as hard as me and they maybe got to 15, 16 and like your body goes through puberty, it changes. Like so much of swimming is about how your body is in the water and how streamlined it can be and um, your power to weight ratio. And you don't have any control over that. So yeah, I don't want to discount all of them because there was a lot of people that were just as dedicated as me. Yeah, so I guess they were just as dedicated, but they didn't have the physical attribute that you have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that you've been gifted with, I suppose. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any control over my physical attributes. I don't have any control over how tall I am or how big my feet are or how flexible my shoulders are. And all of these things help me swim fast. So, well, What do you need to be a good... Sorry, a fast swimmer. You need really flexible joints. Um, God. Yeah, you don't need flexible shoulders in particular because you have to get like really good internal rotation. Um, and then if I, I love it when sometimes uh, like rugby players or something are like, oh, you teach me how to swim. I'm like, yeah, I can, but like I give them like a toe pointing test, like just point your toe in front of me right now and their, their, their foot like doesn't even move. I'm like, I'm sorry, but like I could try teach you, but you're not going to get very far because you need flexibility to be able to move through the water. And um, like I'm pretty tight in some areas, but you do need some your joints to be able to move a little bit. <laughs> so you need <laughs> flexible joints. Mm, yeah. Power to weight ratio being good. And then, I don't know, you've got to have a feel for it as well. I don't know, don't know what that talent bit is, but you've got to be able to like feel where your body is in the water and have a good, be able to control that to get good body position. And sometimes people have all those things, like they're, they're quite strong, they've got good power to weight, they're flexible, but they've got no feel for the water. And so if you don't, I don't know how you get that, <laughs> but if you don't have it, you're just going to um, spin your arms around. You're not going to go anywhere because you've got to let the water like hold you up and you've got to resist it, but also work with it in order to get over it. Like most people think you pull your arms through the water. We sort of think about it as you sort of anchor with your arms and then you shift your body over that point, which sounds ridiculous, but it's just a different way of thinking about using the water as leverage as opposed to just like trying to slice your arms through it. What was the training like or how much training did did you do when you were at school? Well, I trained a lot, um, but I wanted to train a lot. So <laughs> this is not a guide for how to be an Olympian because everybody <laughs> has done it a different way. But no, tell me I how. Literally, tell I, me how it's not too I, late. <laughs> it's definitely never too late. <laughs> you can start training right now. You could be a swimmer. Yeah, what did I, I mean, from when I was seven, I pretty much trained every day. And when I was little, it was probably an hour a day and then it gets bigger and bigger. I was sort of held back from doing more. I really wanted to do more and more. And my coach sat me down. He's like, there's no world champion seven-year-olds. Just like, hold on a second. 
settle down, calm your farm. Like you've got time to be doing six sessions a week. I don't want to see you here six days a week. Please go home. (laughs) Maybe he just had enough of me. I'm not sure. But yeah, as I got older, so probably from when I was about 12, 11, 12, 13, I would have been doing nine, nine sessions a week and they were two hours each. Yeah. So I used to train from five to seven in the morning and then I'd go to school and then I'd train from five to seven at night. So, I mean, if you want something for your kids to keep them out of trouble, like you are at a level of exhaustion where you're, you're not, you're not up to much mischief (laughs) at that point. But yeah, I pretty much started doing that when I was 13, which included then um, doing gym and stuff. And I just wanted to be there so much. Like the idea of grounding me would be like, you can't go to a swimming session. I just loved it. So I know other people came into the sport a lot later. There's some people that did like nippers first and then they came into the sport when they were like 13 or 14. Some people did gymnastics first and they came into swimming. But swimming typically, it just requires a lot of a lot of training. So there is a point where you do have to train a lot, but I don't think I'm recommending that everybody send their seven-year-old to, to swimming sessions five days a week. <laughs> but you loved it. Like you wanted to yeah, go. I wanted to be there. Yeah, I wanted to be there. Like you couldn't have... I mean, they tried to stop me and I would get upset. So it wasn't something like I was getting forced to, to go. It was like literally the place that I wanted to be, which is so weird because now that I'm older, sometimes I don't want to go to training at all. I'm like, oh, maybe I've used up my quota of training sessions and I <laughs> used them all when I was seven. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because you've got to be dedicated to get good at something. You know, and you obviously wanted to get good at it and you enjoyed it, so it was easier for you to. But if you don't have that drive, it's very hard to get good. Yeah, it is. And and that's like a negative feedback loop as well because you're not getting better and so therefore you're less motivated so then you don't get any better and it just like, it's very hard to break that. Yeah, it's... It's rewarding when you're making progress. Yeah. 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 Totally. It seems insane to me that I literally didn't allow myself to have one session off. Like I would be like, no, I can't. I can't miss a single session. But it's also, now that I look back on it, it's like maybe that's the, yes, that's one session wouldn't have made a difference, but that that mind habit of always being on and always putting your sport first, that's definitely something that, has got me to where I am today. So while the session may not have made a difference, it's um, it's the habit of it that probably was helpful. Did you ever get drunk or party or have a dart? Have a dart. Definitely <laughs> like, no darts. Um, but yeah, I think I'm I just think thinking of was... my adolescence. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> um, not really. Like maybe when. It was the end of school, like at graduation or something, when there was a big party on a Saturday night. Maybe I went to that. I probably hung out with my friends. Like maybe we had like tried some terrible, what were those things called? Those um, cruises? Vodka cruises. Yeah, those awful things. Maybe, but like honestly not a big part of my growing up. Because, I mean, I qualified for the Olympic team when I was 17. Like... I think I might have had one party where, yeah, it was like definitely graduation and then there was an after party that night and everyone was like dancing and stuff. So that was like probably one of the only parties I've ever been to. And then I, yeah, qualified for the Olympics a few months later and turned 18, 
just before I got over to London. And then I went over to London, competed. And the first time I ever went out, it was in a nightclub or anything, it was like straight after the London Olympics. <laughs> Talk to me about being the best in the world. Because that sounds interesting. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I've not been consistently. I've only had one meet where I would say that I was the best that year. So that's a nice feeling. It's very good. It's very good. In 2015, um, I won the 100 meters and the 50 meters at the World Champs, which were in Russia, actually. It was incredible, but it was also like, great, this is this thing I've been pushing for and now I've got it and I'm on the other side of it and I don't actually feel any different. It hasn't, hasn't changed anything. Like I still have to go back and do my uni assignments. I still have to work at these relationships in my life. Like it didn't change anything. It's, um, I think I probably bought into that pot of gold sort of thing at the end of the rainbow and I was like, great, my pot of gold will be winning an individual event and I won it. I won the 100 freestyle, which is huge and then I won the 50 freestyle and only four people in history had ever won both of them and it was like great this is awesome but when I looked up the pot of gold had moved again and I was like oh <laughs> the next thing I wanted was like okay great I've got to go to the Olympics and do it and the, the goalpost always shifted as well as there was no long-term happiness in the success like it was a great thing to have but it didn't materially change anything and I sort of thought that it would. Just sort of an anti-climax. And it doesn't happen all at once, but it might be like three months later. So you get this initial spurt of like mm. happiness and um, everyone's congratulating you and all these things. Then three months later, you're like, I don't feel any different than I did before. And I thought this was going to be a life-changing event. <laughs> it happened slowly. So to me, it sounds really awesome being world champion at something, there's a lot of sacrifices and costs that go into doing that. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, there is a lot that goes into it. And, I mean, everyone's sacrifice cost. It's like, but there are also choices. Like, I chose to do it. I chose, I kept choosing to do it over and over again. And I'm also aware that I'm, amazingly privileged to be able to um, do sport as a living and have been able to do that for the last 10 years. And I'm super privileged that I was able to be in a training environment and have parents that could firstly afford to have me there and then have the time to get me there every day and make sure that I could do that when I was younger. And so I'm aware that there was a lot of other factors that went into it. So it feels ungrateful to them be like, oh, yeah, but I had all these costs associated with it. It's like, okay, like, come on. Like, what, what, you didn't go to a party when you were 14? And, I mean, maintaining friendships and good relationships is very difficult when you're away a lot and you're training a lot and you're not, you don't have the same life as everyone else. So that can be challenging. But then the flip side of that is the people who I do find are really good like, they're really good. Like, I don't have superficial relationships because I can't maintain them. I don't have the energy to maintain them. So the ones that stick around are like, they're really good eggs. So you end up having brilliant connections. So it's not a bad thing at all. 
I mean, the only thing that I find difficult is injuries and being in pain a lot. Like, I find that very difficult to manage. But also, I've I've been injured for five out of the ten years of my career, and I've had some of my best performances while I've been injured. So I'm really proud of that. And it's also taught me so much more than I would have learned without it. So I don't know, cost, sacrifice, choice, opportunities, they're all sort of bundled bundled in together for me. What was the injury? Oh, I have like a neck and shoulder thing, which I think might have started as brachial neuritis, which is like a nerves thing. And then my hip and my back are also, my back's probably the worst bit at the moment. So basically just, I mean, I do I do over 19,000 swimming strokes every single week, and I've been doing that since I was like 14 years old. So it's it's a miracle that these are the only things that are wrong with me. Like, <laughs> if you put it in that context, it's like, oh, I can't believe I'm injured. It's like, I can't believe you're you've come this far without being injured. Like it's, it's stupid what you do to your body. <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, it does sound stupid. Yeah. It does. It really does. But does that mean you were swimming with pain? Yes. Oh. And that's fine. Like swimming with pain's fine. I just wish that the pain could stop when I stopped swimming. So when I got out the pool and went home, like, I wish I didn't have to be in pain then. Like, when I was out at dinner with my friends, I wish I could, like, not be in pain enough that I could sit in the chair and, like, have dinner mm. with them like a normal person. But my back would be too sore to sit in a chair for that long. So I was like, I can't. Like, I literally can't come to dinner. So when it comes to those things, that was that's the bit that um, I would say became a really big cost to me was the outside of the pool stuff, like having to stop study because like I couldn't be on a computer because my neck was too sore and I was trying to learn guitar but like I couldn't do that because like I couldn't turn my head to the left like tiny things but like when it starts to impact impact the things that bring joy to your life that's when it became a bit of a, a struggle for me yeah but it doesn't yeah. affect you during pottery mm. oh <laughs> shit <laughs> I love my pottery I know you do but- um, luckily I do hand building stuff, so I don't do wheel stuff, which means you can be a lot less bent over and I okay. like, set up my setup so I can move around a lot and I can like stand up and do it and do all these things. So I've, I've managed to work around it. <laughs> okay. Hey, can we talk about your sister? <laughs> yeah. Kate Campbell. We can. <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> well, what sort of relationship do you have? Kate and I were always incredibly close. We sort of became each other's best friends. We were going through this whole thing together. Right from when we were little, we were like, okay, great. We want to go to the Olympics together. And we did in 2012. We were both on the Olympic team and 2016 and 2020. So we've done it three times. But we sort of, we were training together. We were living together. And then our whole lives sort of became very enmeshed with each other, which was both amazing to have that support and for me to have that experience around me because she's actually, she went to her first Olympics when she was 15. So I learned a lot from her and she pushed pushed me a lot in training. But then there is this thing when you're constantly together that firstly, it stops you exploring your own identity a little bit. And the second thing is like the constant comparison from other people. Like that was like straight from as soon as it became known that we were in the same swimming events, it was straight away like oh when are you going to be your big sister and does it ever like 
is it an issue for you that Kate's faster than you? Like, and I, I came second to Kate a lot, like a lot. But she also went two and a half, three years being undefeated internationally. And people would come up to me and be like, when are you going to beat her? I was like, when am I going to beat her? Ask someone else. Like, nobody is beating her right now. Just give me a sec. <laughs> Were you ever jealous? No. And I think it's a lot easier to not be jealous when you're the younger one because she'd sort of already achieved it. So I wasn't, I've never been jealous of Kate's success. It's always been a really positive thing. Like when we touch the wall and then you turn around and you're like, oh, well, I didn't win, but like, oh my goodness, my sister did. And you're here in like an Olympic final where there's, um, or a world champs final or a Com games final, whatever it is, there's like seven other people there or six others aren't you and Kate. And they're all from different countries. And you're like, well, if it's not me who's doing well, like I'm so glad that it's her. Occasionally, occasionally it was very difficult though. Like well, I remember one meet, it wasn't a meet that mattered. No one would even remember it. It was like a state championships or something. But I was swimming really well. Kate was just coming back from shoulder um, surgery. And I was, yeah, I just, she beat me by like 0.01 or something. I was just like, oh, I just really, God just damn. really wanted an actual win. Like I was still happy with my race, but I just, I just really wanted one time <laughs> where I could have just a one next to my name. Um, but that's really the only one that I remember. And I mean, I think after that race, she, I think she came over and she's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." Like she, she knew that I really wanted that. And I was like, "Oh, don't be sorry. Like it's not, it's not your fault, obviously." The whole point is, is that we push each other. Um, and the important thing to remember with that is that, like, it's easy to be upset with coming second because Kate's beating me. But without, like, her example and training every day, without having her in my life, I may not be seconds. Like, I wouldn't have learned everything that I learned. I wouldn't have pushed myself as hard. Maybe I'm coming eighth in that race without her. So it's easy to be like, oh, because of her, I came second. But there's the other side of that as well. Like you always look up, everyone compares up and be like, I should be up there. Like there's one person who's better than me. It's like, look down, look at where you've come. Like there's, there's seconds, not bad. <laughs> you've just got such a good way of looking at things. <laughs> not always, not always. There's definitely moments, <laughs> there's moments of anger. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I read somewhere that you won a world championship and you got home, and that day Hamish had learnt to use a spoon. <laughs> and so you celebrated that instead of your world championship. Is that true? Sort of. That's close to true. It, was, it wasn't as big as a world championship, but it was um, state championship when we were littler. So it was like, a, it was a big deal for me. It was the first time I'd ever won. Yeah, I got home and Hamish had upstaged me because he has this thing... He still does it now. He won't. He actually won't use a spoon now. But he used to like hold things, and then he'd hold them for about five seconds, and then he'd throw them away. And he just like loved throwing things. Like he just do it all the time. He still does it now. If you give him anything to hold, he'll like throw it as far as he can. And he thinks it's hilarious, and it's like such a good game. But we'd just like got a breakthrough with like, oh, he like will hold the spoon for long enough that like maybe we can start teaching him to feed himself. But it never really got to that. <laughs> We celebrated Hamish holding his spoon and then about four days later he decided he liked the throwing game a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, because we've talked a lot about swimming and achieving medals and winning and everything, but I guess 
your relationship with your brother, your mum being his carer, that's a pretty good dose of perspective. Yeah, huge dose of perspective. You need that. It's very grounding and very good to know that what you're doing, you care about it a lot. It's not it's not life and death. It doesn't really affect anything. Hamish has been very ill for a long time as well. He first got sick in 2012. So you're like, oh, great, I'm having a challenging day. And it's like, well, Hamish is in hospital and mum's um, by her sides for weeks and weeks and she can't leave the hospital. Um, and that's a challenging day. Like having a swim session where you go 0.5 slower than you wanted to is not a challenging day. <laughs> It's not. It's just not. <laughs> it's so hard, though, because it's all relative, you know? It is real. It's not minimising yeah. what you're yeah. going through. It's just saying, like, hey, what you're going through, it may feel tough right now, but if you look up for a second, you realise it's not. And, I mean, you you obviously have amazing perspective, and it must be so weird for you as well because you came through a lot of trauma and a lot of pain, but then... Life doesn't just get magically skipping through daisies after that. Like you still get frustrated at like little things and you're like, yeah, but I overcame a huge thing. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but I'm imagining that that's a similar thing for you. Well, in Celebrity Apprentice, we had that challenge where we had to um, set up a campsite. And so I was trying to set up a campsite and because of my hands, I wasn't able to and I got really upset. Um, That wasn't shown in the final episode, but I got really upset because I wasn't able to do that really simple task that I feel most people, most people who know how to camp, most people would know how to do that. And I think you're so right. Like it's just because you've been through something really, really traumatic doesn't mean that you just get to a point where you're like, cool, life's sweet, life's normal, I'm good now. Yeah. That's a hard thing to come to terms with as well. Like, life is always hard. Like, it just doesn't... (laughs) Like, is it ever going to get... I spoke to this lovely old lady the other day who I met down at the beach and she was talking me through how she's finally managed to learn good meditation techniques and get her anxiety under control. And I was like, this is so great. And then I walked away and I was like, are you telling me I'm still going to be anxious when I'm like 70? I thought that was going to stop when I turned 30. <laughs> but it doesn't get better. Like, it's always going to be difficult. And that's that's hard. It is hard. I guess on the good days, I just try to enjoy them. And on the bad days, I say to myself, everyone has bad days. Hopefully tomorrow will be better. Yeah. You're supposed to be an Olympian, though. Like you're supposed to be, you know, more upbeat. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, acknowledging that it's going to be hard is just um, managing expectations, right? Like, I think that was what I was talking about before was I thought that when I won a world championship that everything else in my life would fall into place, and it didn't, and that was like a surprise to me. But if someone had said to me, it's it's always going to, it's your work in progress. You're always a work in progress. Like this is, it's always going to be like this. And there's no, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's no magic thing that will happen that'll just suddenly solve every issue in your life. That's, um, it sounds obvious, doesn't it? Like I really should have known that, but I didn't. I, I, th- I thought swimming was a, was a solve for that or winning was a solve for that. And it wasn't. 
And it wasn't until after, after I'd won and it didn't solve anything that I was like, oh, maybe the winning's not the important thing here. Maybe it's purely the swimming. Maybe that's the thing that's, that is actually um, the bit that I love because the winning didn't really impact anything. Are you going to the next Olympics? I don't know. It's a big question. Oh, sorry. I would love to. No, it's... um. I mean, firstly, you have to make it, which is such a big thing, but I'm not sure. I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm trying to decide. I've given myself until the end of 2022 to decide. Um, realistically, I'll start doing some training before then because if I don't do some training, I won't be in a position to make a decision. Um, and then I will decide. Like, my intention has been to go, but you just you'll catch me on a different day and I might say something different. So I would love to be in Paris. I think that's that's still the goal, but it kind of depends how my body reacts to starting to do some training again and then mentally how I react to getting back in the pool because I've not been I've not really been in a chlorinated environment since Tokyo, which is the longest I've been away from it and I miss it a little bit, but I don't miss it in the way that I thought I would. So it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a decision that I'm trying to give myself the space to make the right call because it's not one that you can really change your mind on. You've got to be all in or, sorry, other people may not be like this. I've got to be all in or all out. I can't do things halfway. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and planning to go to the Olympics isn't something you can do half-hearted. No. No, and I know I'm going to have to sacrifice a lot, and I know I just said sacrifice isn't a thing, but like now I've got a really settled life in Sydney, but I know that I'll probably have to move and give up things that I really like doing in order to go to the Olympics, and that's fine, but I just need to figure out if I want to do that again because I've done it before, and that's fine. It was a choice then, and I just have to decide again. <laughs> it's always, yeah, you have to keep on choosing it. Totally. Yeah. Hey, you're in a family of five. Do you want a family of your own? <laughs> ah, you've asked me this before. I don't what? know. <laughs> I think I do. I think I do. Um, I mean, I see, I see you with um with your boys, and it's so beautiful. You can tell how much joy they bring to you, and a lot of my friends are like that who have kids. So I think so, but. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I probably will not be having five children. I'll um I'll say that. That's a lot. Also, I'm That's a lot. 20, I'm 28 now. Like I probably should start immediately if um if that's the case and I've yeah, I'm not quite ready for that. And who do you hope the dad will be? Will it be <laughs> your man? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. It would be much better if the guy that I'm currently with is the father. <laughs> hey, no judgment from me. <laughs> You'd make a very good dad, but that's um, that's a long way ahead of us, I think. Um, <laughs> hope Benfield doesn't listen to this. I'm going to send it to him. <laughs> Bronte Campbell, what a legend. I want to wish her all the best with whatever she decides to do. Um... Bronte, I'm going to be eagerly watching from afar. If you want to find out a little bit more about me, the host of Terea Pitt is Hard Work, come give us a follow on Instagram at Terea Pitt or on TikTok at Terea 
underscore pit. Listener.